And what better time to discuss the exciting topic of literary fraud, uh, including a literary fraud that there's, if you're of a certain age, there's a good chance that you read it in high school. Uh, this is the Reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. This is the 10th episode. I'm very excited to have with me today, John Dolan, a.k.a. Gary Brecher, a.k.a. The War Nerd. Thanks for uh, coming on, John. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, we're discussing today a book that came out last year, Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the Imposter, Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries by Rick Emerson, a journalist and radio personality out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting book, and when I read it and saw uh, and took on board its discussion of liter literary fraud, serial literary fraud, very successful literary fraud in this case, the one person I thought of uh, that I had to have if I was going to discuss it here on the pod was uh, John Dolan. Uh, you may know him primarily for his commentary on the world of wars, both contemporary and throughout the vista of history. But one another thing that he's an expert on is actually literary fraud, has written about it during his time, uh, both in academia and out. The first person to go on record saying that James Frey, and if you don't remember the aughts, uh, then uh, I'll just say that James Frey was a very big deal in popular literature at the time. But John Dolan was the first man to say to to come out and say that James Frey was likely a fraud. He he was proven to be right well before Oprah or anybody else noticed. Uh, so I thought we got to get him on the show. He's very graciously agreed to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm glad to be here. I I love uh, the whole topic of forgery um, through the ages. It it's always been one of the most fun parts of literary study and i think that's partly why it doesn't get covered much in uh university english departments because they tend to avoid the fun parts yeah it's funny how they do that but they they definitely do and uh you know i feel like the students would would be all about it uh if if anybody could uh, be bothered to teach it yeah i mean there and not just 20th century fraud either one of the most wonderful fraud examples I know from literary history is a guy who called himself um, Salmanazar with mm. a P in front, right? And uh, he claimed to be from the island of Formosa, of Taiwan, which was convenient because nobody knew anything about Formosa. And uh, even though he looked like an ordinary European, he said that was because the upper class in Formosa, which was him, uh, <laughs> lived underground most of the year and they let huh. uh, the, the poors go out and till the fields and that made them dark. Oh. But then he uh, was introduced to Anglicanism and at a time of intense competition between various sects of Christianity in Europe, he had an epiphany on reading the Anglican creed and said, my goodness, this is the correct interpretation. I can just feel it. <laughs> the The Calvinists, the Protestants, the Catholics, everybody else is wrong. Only the Anglicans have got it right. And 
lo and behold, there was rejoicing in the land among oh. many very wealthy establishment people. And he <laughs> had it easier from there. But my favorite bit of outcome is Salmanazar was then assigned to teach for Mohsen, which he knew absolutely <laughs> nothing about. He turned out to be a, a, a French guy originally. Um, so he was in, uh, assigned to teach Formosan to missionaries who were going to be shipped out to Formosa or Taiwan. And I, I wish somebody would film this. I mean, just the first moment that those missionaries hit the shoreline and start talking whatever gibberish oh that's amazing had taught them that's amazing yeah i mean I, this is literally the first i've heard of this i'm looking it up yeah. on wikipedia and it shows his translation of the lord's prayer uh yeah. just just the first few lines f first few words amy porneo dan chin orneo vicky <laughs> yeah all right why why why, why the hell not um yeah. that's great yeah so so they're they're great stories uh if i was being if i was inclined to be more uh tendentious about why english departments might not be wild about teaching literary fraud i do agree it's it, it might be due in part to humorlessness uh maybe in the larger part but also uh those stories tend to be a little um about how Corrosive. Yeah, corrosive. That's exactly the yeah. right word. Uh, they're yeah. corrosive to the idea that people judge things based on literary quality or on uh, in a, in new ideas, uh, <laughs> anything yeah. like that. Um, yeah, I mean, basically the lesson of fraud, and I'll just give away my own position, which mm -hmm. is actually painfully obvious, is if you really want to believe it, someone's going to produce what you really want to believe. Mm. Uh, and therefore, you should probably step back a while. Mm. But uh, people don't usually do that. Um, and that goes for all kinds of communities, ideologies. Oh, yeah, so. pretty much across the board, it seems. Yeah. Um, so before we get into all that, uh, it is it is uh, part of the uh, Ritom way of doing things to do brief self-crit. Uh, of my last episode, I, I like to uh, uh, point to the things I could have done better. So with Akewood, we were discussing uh, the webcomic Akewood with my good friend John Parrish. He was great. Uh, I I don't know audio editing. Uh, his mic was a lot quieter. I'm sorry about that, listeners. Uh, I'm I'm told it wasn't too disruptive to the listening experience, especially to people with like modern headphones, as opposed to what I've got. Uh, also. Uh, it's Aquid is a, a huge sprawling webcomic. I couldn't get to everything I wanted. Uh, I might uh, produce more long form written work on it because it might be a bit uh, easier or, or more possible to get in all my thoughts, perhaps in collaboration with John. Uh, also, we decided not to get uh, our sensei, that bumper sticker. You know, you got to maintain a respectful relationship. We're, we're not sure whether it would mesh with his sense of humor. He's a very humorous guy, but, you know, generational humor gaps are definitely a thing. Uh, so that's it for self-crit. Um, okay. But uh, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about Unmask Alice. Uh, Unmask yeah. Alice is the story of Beatrice Sparks. Um, now, she's a best-selling author, but mostly not under her own name. Right. Uh, yeah, she was a total failure under her own name. Yes, she was a uh, a product of the sort of Mormon early twentieth mid early to mid twentieth century 
uh, Mormon West, pretty hard scrabble background, um, mm. born, I believe in a mining camp, uh, or, or at least left there as a child. I can't quite remember the story, but in any event, um, in many respects, her actual story is, uh, I don't know, necess- at least before she started making stuff up, uh, I don't know about inspirational exactly, but you can respect it in that she was mm-hmm. a striver. She was somebody who was trying to, from uh, low low level circumstances, uh, trying to make it uh, one way yeah, or the I other. I mean, she was she wasn't um, third generation academic publishing world the way a lot of people who end up famous in American literature really are. Right. She she came up the hard way, and forgery is one of the ways that people come up the hard way. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, so I suppose we should lay out uh, what she is famous for. Probably the most, her most famous work is uh, Go Ask Alice. I wonder yeah. whether people still read that one. When I looked on the Goodreads reviews, uh, I, I looked after you mentioned that some of them were uh, interesting. And they were mm-hmm. indeed. And mo- But most of them came from people my age. Um, or a little bit older, a little bit younger people who had read it because it was pretty ubiquitous. Uh, yeah, when well, I was it was in... probably ubiquitous in my generation either. I was, I'm old. I was born in 1955. Mm-hmm. I was probably gener- uh, very, very ubiquitous in my era, but uh, I didn't read it. I mean, I, I think, uh, well, gender rules uh, vary very intensely with generation. Uh, it was a book, I think, mainly for girls, mm. not boys. Uh, and that division was very sharp in that generation. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I I had my own problems and I wasn't <laughs> very focused. But mm. another reason that I, I didn't want to uh, bother with it is that even though I came from a very conservative background and, and also had been snubbed uh, by the hippies in mm. my school, so I didn't particularly love them except in an unrequited way Mm. Uh, but at the same time i thought the uh the the voice of grace slick was something more deserving than the age Mm. could generate i i just uh heard don't you want somebody to love on Mm. am radio and i thought um that is a call to war by the most <laughs> beautiful voice in the world. Yeah. And I didn't want her mocked, you know. Right. Uh, I, I, and the name, I should explain, Go Ask Alice, is from uh, Jefferson Airplane, i.e. Grace Slick, song. <clears throat> and um, I, th- I think um, Spark didn't come up with it. I doubt she even knew who Grace Slick was or that she'd ever listened no, I don't think she like, did from what I remember of the book. She yeah. did not come up with the title. No. Somebody in the publish in her publisher came up mm. with the title because they weren't sure of it. They thought, this can sell, but, you know, and mm. somebody was actually singing the song, Don't You Want Somebody to Love? Uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, not not that. Um, um, the Whatever their drug song was. Uh, uh, yeah, White Rabbit. White Rabbit. And... Uh, her the publisher assigned to her said go ask alice that's it Mm. yeah so go ask alice uh purports to be the journal 
of a, a young girl, a teenage girl, uh, contemporary at the time, uh, late 60s, early 70s, who develops uh, severe drug issues uh, very quickly, uh, becomes a runaway, uh, engages in a number of tragic misadventures, um, many terrible things happen to her, and then she dies. Uh, so I, I didn't read it as a teenager, a few people in, at my, I, uh, without getting into a whole explanation, I went, I, I was in a pretty unusual environment as a teenager where, uh, uh, pretty heavy countercultural overtones. I don't remember people knowing the story of the creation of Go Ask Alice when I was a kid, uh it, though it people had been doubting its provenance since it first came out but uh people people read it with a certain degree of they did not take it as a, a big moral statement right they mm. took it as uh something to kind of rubberneck at as a combination of man it, it'd be crazy if all this stuff actually happened to this chick ver- and, and or man somebody made all this stuff up and they made up some crazy shit um, but it wasn't that popular. It wasn't one of the books that really got passed around a lot in my environment. Um, but I do know outside and outside of like the weird rarefied place I was at, uh, that it got, that it circulated like with my sister's friends, I believe. And so on. It was a even, big hit. Even in your time, because you're a lot younger than me. It was still oh, yeah. around. Oh yes. Yeah. Because um, I, I think one of the things about most forgeries is they're very closely tailored to an audience Mm -hmm. uh, and audiences change the values change very quickly uh at least in in this culture anyway and uh i would have thought go ask alice uh would become a a a joke really fast i mean uh um, beatrice sparks wasn't very good at Mm. uh the dialect or anything and i mean I, i remember how uh how difficult it is to market something to a an adolescent audience, which I think particularly in the late 60s, early 70s, was highly attuned, even, even mm-hmm. a loser loner like me, highly attuned to uh, the jargon of, mm-hmm. uh, of fashion. For example, I remember uh, reading another very popular book only because it was assigned in my seventh grade class um the outsiders by se Hinton. yes incredibly popular mm-hmm. but i remember reading the first line and it was something like when i got out of the movies all i could think about was a ride home and paul newman's blue eyes and i thought what <laughs> this is supposed to be uh, oh wait this is this is a male narrator and he said wait yeah um, yeah that, that wasn't possible and, yeah, and I I knew it wasn't possible, but yeah, uh, I it, I think it passed. Yeah, I think one thing that might happen is if if the grownups and we'll talk about go uh, Beatrice Sparks reception history later on down the line, if the grownups accept it enough to foist it on future generations, the future generations don't know mm. what don't know the lingo don't know how people at the time actually talked um 
And so as far as they're concerned, yeah, they might talk kind of stupid, but yeah, it was the seventies, obviously. Mm. Um, and, and the people I knew reading it did take it with at least a grain of salt. They did treat it as kind of a joke, but I guess they kind of liked it. It wasn't a camp thing. Exactly. It's hard to describe, right. but it, it has had staying power. Um, right. Right. so the, uh, I, I'm surprised that people in your generation read it at all. I yeah. would have thought it faded very quickly. Yeah. Well, I gather it's, it has some sort of, uh, uh, let's say marginal sex, uh, yes. scenes that yes. might, People might not admit it, but it might very well have right. uh, affected their interest. Right. And this would have been, you know, so I'm talking about the late 90s, early 2000s. So just before, like, the Internet kind of became what the Internet became, uh, where you could find considerably realer and rawer uh, accounts or depictions of drug use, sex, etc. Um, very easily through your computer. Um in any event, uh, probably makes sense to go back a little bit to the narrative. So Beatrice Sparks um, kind of climbs out of uh, economic marginality uh, in one of the classic ways through marriage. Uh, she she goes to school, college for a little bit, but she meets a man and marries him and becomes a, uh, as the uh, phrase, a, 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 as they call it in the publicity material, a Mormon housewife. But she's bored. She wants to write. She wants to... Uh, be associated with literature in a pretty grandiose sense, uh, as well as uh, grandiose but ill-defined. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's pitching stuff all over the place. Uh, she has this pretty grim uh, experience of uh, getting into this almost like uh, assembly line style of writing for women's magazines and these humor magazines and this entire like world of print culture that i mean the women's magazines are still out there you could still get them at the supermarket but i get the impression that there was just a lot more printed material thrown out there for people to buy and consume uh before you know smartphones and what have you and she's kind of in that in that mode trying to pitch people um uh Go ahead. I think this is probably still going on as mm-hmm. much as ever. Mm. In fact, it will go on till the end of the world. Um, and the the only things that change are what does the audience want? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there were there was a more recent case of um, a gay girl in Damascus who oh, was supposedly yes. a lesbian girl uh, in damascus living through the syrian civil war it was actually written by an american man named tom mcmaster oh wow uh, who had no particular experience of uh being syrian or a girl or Or a lesbian lesbian, yeah (laughs) yeah okay people people devoured it yeah because yeah because i so this was during the war i assume like in the last basically any time in the last you know 12 years um yeah. yeah so so i could see how that would you know and and that reminds me of these very strange and to me completely subterranean conflicts that go on in fandom communities so people who are super fans of certain franchises they get together online they obsess over them they write fan fiction extensive fan fiction huge amounts of it uh 
libraries of Congress worth, and they criticize each other endlessly over it, mostly over not over quality, but over ethos, essentially. And yeah. in order to win these arguments, people come up with these insane made-up identities. I'm going to link to to some in the show notes. Not the uh, some uh, a YouTuber who I actually quite like called Strange Aeons, uh, who is something of an internet archaeologist who who goes through. She she herself lived through a lot of this stuff. Uh, and she goes through and she makes these very uh, funny, but also like pretty rigorous. Like she she does good as a speaking as a failed intellectual historian. She does pretty good spade work, um, you know, does uh, good analysis on these weird, weird uh, uh, cultural things. Uh, you you might enjoy them as well, John. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'll check it out. Uh, but uh, so anyway, what, what, what you need if you're going to be this ambitious person if you're going to try to break through in this impossible field, uh, you know, cranking stuff out, trying to appeal to people, what you need more than anything is an opening. And mm. the opening, according to Emerson, that Sparks found was a man named Art Linkletter. Mm. Um, that's a name I had heard before, but have almost no associations with. Well, uh, even in my generation, he was uh, he was kind of a corny guy. Yeah. He's, he's mocked. It by Hunter Thompson okay. in Fear and Loathing in mm. Las Vegas. He's mocked in an interesting way. Uh, it, it's a quote that actually is a Shelley quote, mm. but uh, HST, who's whom I'm very fond of, uh, yeah, did uh, did it as a, an Art Linkletter quote. Uh, it was something like, uh, "Genius holds hands the whole world round, and one mm. shiver goes through the whole circle," or something like that. <laughs> And he found that ludicrous, but uh, it, Linkletter was some kind of talk show host. He's, yeah. I think it was something called Kids Say the Darndest Thing. Oh, he was that guy. Okay. Yeah. So they they, they reproduced that. Um, I forget who hosts it, but some some former sitcom star, I believe. Didn't so Cosby kind of, do that for a while? Cosby did it for a while. Yeah, it came back in the 80s, and then it came back, I think, in the aughts or the 10s. You know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an evergreen, I think. Yeah, uh, they they yeah. can always bring that one back. Uh, though you'd fear YouTube would cut into its audience, but what do I know? Um, so uh, Art Linkletter, major TV star, uh, kind of an America's dad type figure, from what I could tell from Rick Emerson. This not an era which was particularly fond of dads, uh, at least among the youth. No. But um, her, his daughter uh, uh, killed herself, uh, possibly under the influence of LSD, and uh, Linkletter becomes a drug warrior, becomes, this is around the time that Nixon was elected, uh, made a big deal out of expanding and uh, hardening the war on drugs. And uh, Linkletter, you know, it, it's like if Bob Saget all of a sudden uh, went on TV and said, you know, I want to kill this guy. Yeah. Um and you because know he, he was, killed my daughter. Because he killed yeah. my daughter, right? I mean, you know, grieving dad. You know, you understand these things. It is worth noting, uh, and we'll, you know, and we'll, you'll see why this is important down the line. But that link letter later um, kind of re retracted a lot of that and said yeah. that you know treatment is really what matters. Treatment is what could have saved his daughter. It's also uh, LSD was the sort of moral panic drug of that time, yeah. as far as I could tell. Uh, which is so interesting because now it's and not, I recently found this out through another book. This isn't actually that new of a practice, but it became 
uh, it came to attention. Now people use LSD as a productivity drug. Um, yeah, uh, that, yeah, I mean, I remember when Silicon Valley interviewees were talking about Tibetan tea with tons of butter and that <laughs> stuff wouldn't like make you a super productive exec. <laughs> and now it's microdosing LSD. Right. But, yeah. but at the time it was this uh, to to mainstream America, it was very frightening. Um, people didn't know what was involved. I mean, pretty much everyone my it, it, it's a it's something that people my age joke to each other about. That seemingly all of our parents uh, have suspiciously similar stories of mm -hmm. saving someone who was on LSD from throwing themselves out of a window because they were convinced they could fly. And it's like yeah, I don't know. Did I, you? All... I don't believe those stories. I've Nor been... do I. I've certainly taken LSD several times. I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes you a pompous, well, it made me uh, a more pompous, I shouldn't say pompous, it made me a more pompous, more <laughs> pseudo-intellectual jerk than I normally was. And uh, I would remember things I said the next day and groan. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can, in fact, groan in the shower from drugs other than alcohol, <laughs> as I as I discovered. But yeah, then, you know the the whole mythos about drug damage uh, is oddly skewed. Uh, mm. I don't know of anyone who killed themselves on LSD. Uh, I know a lot of people who uh, had weird reactions to pot, which is mm. supposedly harmless and right. absolutely terrifies me, mm. and I I would never do again. Uh, so I, I think the whole hierarchy of drug damage is, is wrong. Oh, yeah. And it's because nobody, there was no percentage in telling the truth about it. And there was a tremendous profit in sensationalist lies. Speaking of, uh, Sparks came forward to Art Linkletter with a diary that she claimed to have uh, acquired through her teen counseling practice. Uh, Sparks yeah. had studied psychology for a semester or two, uh, did not have a teen counseling practice at, at all. Um, yeah. And so this was completely manufactured. Um, yeah. Linkletter, uh, Linkletter got in touch with publishers, uh, put this in front of them. Many editors from Emerson's account who had a look at it uh, thought that it sounded laughably cartoonish. And like it was written by a bored, frustrated, middle-aged housewife. And it yeah. was. Uh, but they still published it. And it became a huge hit. Well, once you've had the first hit, you can become even more ridiculous. I mm. mean, I'm probably one of the few people who's uh, taken the risk of reading uh, James Frey's later works, if oh. you can call them that. And mm. they're... Uh, ridiculous and they're they're increasingly ridiculous but then his first work his breakthrough um a million little pieces was also ridiculous and that's why i called it out because right. uh i mean the drug details are absurd he talks about he talks about middle class drugs and then he talks about sniffing glue all mm. the time and that just doesn't track that's not, yeah that, that's not how it worked Sniffing glue is for people who are in the last desperate stages of a, a doomed life. Uh, right. And that's not at all the same of, as 
well, for me, doing a lot of speed or, you know, mm -hmm. for richer people doing a lot of coke mm -hmm. or whatever, or even doing a lot of acid for right. artsy, pretentious people. Mm -hmm. Those are all different things. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a giant uh, I'm a giant dweeb, so I've done very little in the way of drugs. Uh, basically, by the time I stopped being a dweeb as much, uh, it, it just seemed like it would be tedious. <laughs> like yeah. nobody wants to hang out with like a like a 30 year old acid virgin. Like like who needs yeah. that? Uh, so, but I also do I, I do consume recreationally the most dangerous drug of all, alcohol. Uh, yeah. which kills the shit out of people all the time and makes them act insane. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, but in any event, yeah. uh, the lies. So, so we should probably talk a little bit about uh, if we're going to refer to James Frey, just briefly for the listeners, James Frey was a, uh, he, he acted in that um, profitable and murky space between memoir and novel. Uh, mm. Is it one? Is it the other? Uh, uh, in the nineties and the aughts, he was a uh, big hit. Uh, he he recounted his experiences in the uh, his addiction experiences, his rehab experiences, various interactions in crime, uh, in this very kind of uh, drippy, lacrimose manner. Um, he wasn't actually part of the McSweeney's group, I don't think. Um, McSweeney's being a sort of a internet. Uh, popular literature mainstay of that period, but he's sort of adjacent to them in terms of like a uh, gloppy uh, emotionalism and sentimentality that is supposedly like partially redeemed by, um, you know, its sincerity more or less. Yeah, yeah, he was, he, and he very much affected the uh, the literary style that mm -hmm. was uh, popular then. It was supposedly. Ooh, dark. Ooh, flat. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it descended from Hemingway, and it involved mm -hmm. a lot of uh, ludicrous repetition, which uh, you know was kind of an old trick to me when I read mm. a million little pieces. I was already older than Prey. I was mm -hmm. older than everybody, <laughs> and uh, I was just sick of it. It was like uh, they're like he's supposedly in love with someone named Lily, who's another doomed addict, except Lily never existed, which you can tell about five pages in. Yeah. And uh, he says, I get off the phone with Lily and it and all I can do is cry, mm. cry, cry, separate paragraphs, cry. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> this goes on for most of the page. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was actually the part I was going to segue into, uh, when I started talking about my, uh, lacking drug experiences, which is, and you do get some of this in Emerson, which I think is fine because he's a journalist, but most of the time when people discuss literary frauds, what they're going after is they're going after in this very forensic, uh, almost judicial sort of way where they're trying to find these evidentiary kill shots, Right. Mm -hmm. Like this provably materially could not have happened. And I think that's yeah. well worth pursuing and that's fine. But that's not where most of these things begin to get debunked. As far right. as I could tell, they begin to get debunked when somebody who is not attached to the conventional narrative or perhaps who is, but is also interested in uh, certain other aspects like the truth, uh, they they pick up something that just doesn't pass 
like a basic rational sniff test. So yeah. you had the experience of being a guy who had done a certain amount of drugs recreationally. A lot of drugs. Yeah. Yeah. A lot yeah. of drugs. Uh, uh, so you could look I mean, at... not in my youth, unfortunately, when they were right? easy to get yeah, and socially when... acceptable. I did them during the Reagan era because I'm stupid. But Yeah, um, I hear I hear that's... that in terms of I mean, I started a a, a podcast a, a podcast in twenty twenty three, you know, so uh <laughs> but um yeah. but yeah, but I, I I mean once you do that, you uh, I mean, for example, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the voice of somebody who really has done a lot of speed yeah, uh, in a good way. And you recognize it instantly if you've done a lot of speed. There are some things that would be called run-on sentences, which are absolutely beautiful. There's a, weirdly enough, there's a description of imagining little shorebirds on a beach mm. somewhere in that book where he's just ranting and it's magnificent, mm. but there's nothing of that uh, in phrase narrative. Um, I think there was probably something like it in um, Beatrice Sparks, mm. but that was because she just, was a very repetitious writer yeah and she didn't have much else to say right and you you can sort of do a cheap version of speed but but frey was uh a massively sentimental writer and that's not really a uh, you know an effect of of most drugs a few mm. alcohol among yeah them. booze right yeah, yeah. <laughs> booze will do most it. do not um it's all it's many of them are kind of a cure for various forms of intense emotion and uh the funny thing is though that brought and i wanted to mention this on this show because it's a really interesting aspect of belief in forgery mm. i talked to a woman whose daughter was in prison because she was a uh, she was dealing heroin and uh i i have also done heroin by the way i mm -hmm. yeah i, I don't want to play the saint here Mm. Um, but, uh, she loved a million little pieces mm. phrase book. If you remembered your drug experiences, honestly, that would not be possible. Mm. So she was in some way lying to herself, probably to cover the tremendously grim experiences she'd had mm. as this part of her life, including being in an American hellhole prison right. at, at the moment, you would have to see it as some redeemable narrative of, uh, I mean, all American narratives in a way are some version of amazing grace, right? You mm. would have to see this as amazing grace. Oh, look how far I fell and look how far God or the world or whatever has raised me up. Uh, and, my heart is actually pure and tender and uh, I didn't have to wait around. I, well, I, I won't even get into what you really have to do, mm. what you really had to do, particularly in the eighties before it became fashionable again to get heroin. If you weren't part of the hardcore junkie world mm. at the very, very least, it involved spending many dozens of hours pretending to be friends with friends of friends who you would, much rather not see mm. and who are pretty horrible people and knew very well why you were there mm -hmm. and uh but were so wretched yeah they had to go along with it and you had to go along 
Yeah, the spectacle of degradation that doesn't have even like a even like a S and M like redemption to it, let alone a Christian redemption. Uh, yeah. You know, there's no like closing the loop other than you know time uh, or uh, just rolling the dice, I guess. Now, uh, yeah. when when you were looking into Frey, I remember uh, because I was that that was around the time a little bit after I had started reading your work in the Exile, and that uh, that's how I learned from you about Eddie Little, um, yeah. who uh, was a uh, actual criminal and an actual junkie who wrote two pretty good crime novels. Yeah, um, you know, uh, if you like crime novels, they're partially memoiristic but they also contain uh what are to me anyway very obvious flights of fancy that i think that's the novelist i think that's Frey being a novelist he wants to write the write the adventures he wish he was having when he was actually in jail um like being an 18 year old master thief uh doing something that sounds a lot like the isabella stewart gardner heist um it's it's not quite that because it's you know um but it's pretty yeah, when similar. he has to hide in the attic and all yeah. that. Yeah. And it got worse in his second novel, which was his last novel. It was all yeah. kinds of fantasies. But I, um, I, I don't mind the fantasy so much because I just see them for what they are. But yeah. um there there's also some very real but anyway, go on with yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I was just saying I'm, with uh Eddie Little uh, uh his first novel, his better one is called Another Day in Paradise. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he wrote two novels, he OD'd and died. Yes. Um, there are a lot of, maybe the best scenes of all are of uh, other gangsters and mm-hmm. uh, prison uh, riots. And mm-hmm. nobody is going to applaud those scenes as socially useful, teaching mm-hmm. kids valuable lessons, because they're about uh, race-based riots in mm-hmm. prisons uh, where you try to jam a sharpened rebar up mm. somebody's ass. I mm. mean, it's uh, it's not pleasant stuff, but um, he was there. He did yeah. it. He proved his junkie creds by dying. But yeah. That, that's, that's not the way you have to prove it in this literary style. No. Uh, and it's funny, uh, you know, I, I, I looked up some of Little's, like, uh, you know, journalist, uh, sorry, essayistic work. There's not, he wrote a lot of it. A lot of it's not online as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. But one of them was uh, him saying that the closest thing he, the, he, he did think there was a point to it all, which is um, uh, try to avoid going to prison. Yeah. Um, and and also maybe uh, one message you're not really going to get across that much in uh, most cultures, which is uh you know, uh, try to avoid having kids that you know are going to wind up in the system and or uh, stop these insanely punitive drug laws. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he wasn't a political guy, really, but he, he knew that much. Anyway, um, so, uh, but that's not that's not on Mask Alice, right? On Mask Alice. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, no, that's I digress. Not, I, I brought up Eddie Little. Um, yeah. Digressions are, you know, digressions are a good half of any given ritom so don't don't worry about <laughs> okay. it um okay. so alice huge hit right mm-hmm. every um it gets uh cited by many uh politicians and police officers and teachers and principals um as uh as a wake-up call to america about what's happening to its youth 
there's also a very um a very prominent through line of sexual degradation often racialized uh mm. in go ask alice uh in that uh it's like this innocent white girl who winds up doing a bunch of sex stuff um and we all know the sort of uh where that brings the imagination uh of many many americans uh now the book itself um unmask alice uh emerson talks a fair amount about it but the kind of bulk of his investigative effort uh, and the bulk of the book is about the follow-up, right? Mm. Follow-ups are often tricky uh, for these uh, literary fraudsters from what I've uh, read of your analysis. But, yeah. uh, and Sparks actually did manage uh, to to get a pretty uh, solid foot in the door. And in this, she did have something more of a material basis, but if anything, it kind of makes the fraud worse. Because what she followed it up with was Jay's Journal, another pseudonymous journal uh, supposedly acquired through her counseling practice about a teenage boy who becomes a Satanist. He does a bunch of devil-worshipping rituals um, that, and also uh, intentionally defies God. And uh, he does things like, uh, he does many drugs, various sex things. Uh, probably the worst part of it is is his uh, satanic marriage where he uh, kills a kitten with his bare hands. Yeah. Um, despite being ludicrous, this has this teeny tiny scintilla of reality in the case of uh, Alden Barrett. Barrett, a uh, sensitive kid who lives near Provo, Utah, where the Sparks live. Um, and he was, he had depression issues and uh wound up self-medicating with drugs and alcohol um his parents being strict mormons and the father being a psychologist uh more or less tried to discipline these problems away which of course didn't work uh he had uh, a, a very um teenage intense romance uh mm-hmm. with a slightly older i believe high school student uh they got secretly married which is kind of the basis for the satanic wedding uh in the book but it yeah their, their wedding wasn't satanic there was nothing all, satanic though. about it it was actually it, very... it was sort of softcore hippie like, right you know, yes imagining yes hippie married in a grove with blah 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 absolutely yeah that's the thing you know alden looking at it from our perspective everything alden does like it's a little escalated i do get the impression mm-hmm. that people just kind of escalated at least middle class people escalated quicker then middle-class yeah. people escalate today. I don't know. That's just kind of an impression. Yeah. He, d- he, he did more, more quickly, but he was a depressed kid with some drug issues. And like, it's very, a middle-class kid, a good kid, a smart kid. And it would have been so easy to deal with that. Uh, well, it should have been, but let me, let, I mean, if I can yeah, inject go for one personal recollection here. Yeah, go for it, please. Still embitters me. Uh, mm. I was a severely depressed uh adolescent and uh i eventually at the age of 19 dragged myself and it was not in my family tradition (laughs) yeah my family certainly wasn't going to send me to a psychiatrist they would have died first but uh i went there on my own and in secret to uh a psychiatrist at the uc berkeley uh clinic and uh Basically, I, I 
I mean, it was about the first time I'd spoken to anyone in a week or so. And I, mm. I said, uh, I'm, I'm like the worst person in the world. I want to kill myself. And he just nodded at me. And uh, I gathered that that was something called silent mirroring, mm. which was typical of Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, more than a decade later, I went on uh, a drug called imipramine, mm. uh, and I had one of the few epiphanies of my life where uh, six six weeks into the process, uh, after I'd ceased to believe it would ever work at all, it, it did work. Mm. And uh, I was in a different and much, much better world. And then I uh, looked up, I, I was so impressed that I went to the medical library at the university where I was teaching and looked up this drug, imipramine. And uh, I, I learned that it was first patented uh, in the year that I was born. Mm. So anybody could have given me that mm. and life would have been transformed yeah. radically. Yeah. And instead, this guy just nodded to me when I said I wanted to kill myself. So, you know, Alden had a psychiatrist who mm. said, Alden isn't really depressed. We don't mm -hmm. need to do anything like that. So let me just put in a bad word for uh, 1970s psychology. Yeah, yeah. Here. Yeah, the, it, it's, uh, I guess when I say it would have been easy to, I'm not saying depression is easy, having experienced it myself what i'm saying I, I guess i should rephrase it as if you look at the things that he was doing they wouldn't be shocking to right. most i think thoughtful people now right like his interest yeah. in like vaguely hippy dippy stuff would even if, if anything seem like oh that's a little that's what a, is a cute little nerd yeah, it's um, touching. I mean, yeah, it's... it's touching in some places, actually. Yeah. Um, and but at the time, it freaked everybody out. He had the bad—I um, don't know—it's necessarily his bad luck or bad, not the bad luck to find a bad psychiatrist. Bad luck to be mm. born in an era of bad psychiatrists. Yeah. Um, you know, to say, "Oh, you're just not depressed." Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not a strict. Um, biochemical guy in any event i and among other things i simply don't know enough chemistry or biology but there is a part of me that thinks you could do some pretty good history uh or historical analysis on the basis of what kind of chemicals people were able or encouraged to put in their bodies uh mm. that affect their because i just think i think about the lead paint thing yeah. um how uh, how dramatically uh, that has the cessation of the use of lead paint has led to some very dramatic, broad social changes in social behavior. And I sometimes do wonder if, like, like you said, if the psychological profession was in a place to recognize the value of antidepressants, even to the extent yeah. that it has now, which I mean, the, the jury is, as far as they're concerned, still out, even if everybody kind of knows that you, you need them, antidepressants, yeah. um, they may not work for everybody, but they work for a hell of a lot of people. Uh, if people really took that on board in the mid 20th century, you could have seen, I think, some pretty dramatic historical changes. Yeah, anyway. I would think so. I, I, instead, people got prescribed speed for a lot of things from asthma to depression. 
And mm. I mean, I have spent some wonderful, wonderful times on speed, but it's not something to give depressed people right. casually. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Anyway, um, so uh, Alden Barrett kept a diary. Uh, pretty, from what Emerson relates of it, fairly uh, standard issue. If anything, I would say a little more articulate, a little more touching uh, uh, adolescent stuff. Um, you know, about his feelings and thoughts mm. and his interest in women and interest in music and his dislike for the Vietnam War, uh, so on and so forth. Beatrice Sparks wheedles it out of the grieving parents. Um, and then about, she takes 20, about 20 pages from it is what Emerson mm. estimates and then writes hundreds of extraordinarily lurid pages around it. Yeah. Um, of just this uh, really uh, basically chick tracked level uh, yeah. depiction yeah. of unmotivated satanic evil. Yeah. I mean, if I could, I would want to say two things about that. Mm. One, um, the most impressive stat uh, in uh, Go Ask Alice for me was that three quarters of the serious fraud in the U.S., uh, of some particular category occurs in Utah County. Mm -hmm. And it's as, uh, as Emerson suggests, it's because Mormons trust each other mm -hmm. and they, they are meant to trust each other. And a lot of people are going to take advantage of that. Um, mm -hmm. And within the community, they'll believe anything. So mm -hmm. um, part of that is the uh, like fraud depends on trust and uh the other thing is that another marker that should have worked more than it worked and and there's something really interesting about this that when when people come across a fraud as you say they tend to defer to authority rather than consulting their own experience because there were a lot of drugs and mm. whereas there was not a lot of satanism mm. that was bullshit mm -hmm. that was absolute bullshit yeah generations of people have wanted there to be satanists yeah. both in terms of christians who want an enemy to fight and like vaguely rebellious kids and then they look into actual satanists and they're like eh. yeah you know they're they're lame more than anything i mean right? drugs work calling yeah. up demons doesn't work I right mean, God. Yeah, I mean, and that that's something that the likes of like Anton LaVey or whoever else have had to deal with this whole time. Um, uh, it, it doesn't work. They know it doesn't work. Uh, so they, they have to come up with something else to keep you in the circus tent. And for most people, uh, it's it's just unpersuasive. So, yeah, uh, Provo is in, as you say, Utah County, um, Utah County, Utah. It is in the heart of the Mormon kingdom. You might kind of think of Salt Lake City as the heart, and it is in some ways. It's, you know, where the tabernacle and everything is. But it's also, from what I'm told, Salt Lake City is kind of a lot like a normal city, or at least the closest you're going to get in the Great Basin. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I taught at Vegas for one horrible year. Mm. And, uh, for example, Vegas punks, punk was a thing at the time, mm -hmm. Vegas punks were really cool in a way because it was them against the world it wasn't yeah. like that in the bay area <laughs> yeah, yeah right 
Yeah. yeah, I always, I was always curious because it, it's a little bit the same way in Boston, where it's like, yeah, you're, and I think that's one of the reasons why Boston punk would so often wind up going the other way around and turning into like weird right wing, um, um or or yeah. even Nazi whatever. Because who are you going to rebel against? It's you know, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, Salt Lake City is relatively straightforward. Like you, you, it, it, it votes Democrat pretty for whatever that's worth. But Provo is like real Mormon, real Mormon hours, as they say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there is this relationship between the the belief system, the uh, of the Latter Day Saints, uh, fantasy, the the way in which fantasy and reality uh, are held to constitute each other to a certain degree, and uh, trust, and like for lack of a better term, affect. Like you're not supposed to be a smart aleck among the Mormons, yeah. as far as I could tell. And like obviously, you could you could be a smart aleck and be profoundly gullible. But yep. uh, it 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 kind of doesn't help the gullibility of the population if you expect everybody to have this open, friendly, in many respects, quite pleasant. Especially if you're used to dealing with, you know, uh, you know, snarky is one of my least favorite words. Snarky, uh, glib, uh, smart alecky types like I am. The times I've mm -hmm. met Mormons have been very pleasant because they're well, very yeah. When you're when you're trying to drive across the country right. on a budget of zero. And a Mormon pulls over to help you and mm -hmm. nobody in your family knows anything about cars and you're terrified, <laughs> uh, which happened to us on a yearly basis, um, <laughs> then uh, you're awfully grateful to them. Yeah, right. But it does create this environment where not just you get a ton of fraud, but you're not entirely sure whether they like they if you put them in the court they get that there's a legal thing going on that legally uh, a, a, a certain bounds of reality have been crossed but you're not entirely certain whether that's their lived experience right yeah. like i think there's a certain degree to which sparks really did think of herself as a writer and as a teenage as a teen counselor um yeah. like i think and the most pathetic part for me is she thought of herself as a, a college graduate. It's like, yeah. I mean, I, I spent way too long at Berkeley and I, I truly loathe that kind of credentialing. Yeah. I, it's just unbelievable to me that someone cared as much about it as right. she seems to have done. Yeah. Yeah. That is weird. I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in, boston area academia and unlike a lot of people who would phrase it that way not harvard um hey, yeah. but uh you know uh and yeah i, I also kind of threw a lot of years at that and i was around it from childhood and yeah like it's 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 very strange um, i mean she was a famous author right I mean, to me that rates like even if you were a fraud that rates right. massively the, the the only bad part for me is what she did to Alden Barrett's yes. family. And that is just yes. a mortal sin. I don't care yes. what she's using. Yeah, we should have we should we we should explain that. So and this is kind of where Emerson really kind of lines up his shots. If you're inclined to think that Sparks is like a fun uh you know scammer character. I know a lot of uh people roughly my age and younger admire scammers, especially lady scammers, and you might think she's some kind of hashtag girl boss. But believe me, uh, Provo, small, tight-knit city. Everyone knows everyone else. 
uh, she leaves in, despite having made up the vast majority of it, she leaves in many, many incriminating details uh, that make it clear that she's talking about the Barretts. And yeah. uh, it it devastates the family, uh, up to and including one of Barrett's siblings committing suicide. Um, mm-hmm. They become the talk of their area. Uh, the house... People is, are defacing the grave. Yes. Defacing Alan's grave so that they have to put it into a, a storage shed. Yeah. They're getting that. threats. And this yeah. is this is in the 70s when you would... You know, uh, it's so funny. At this point, if I heard about this happening today, I'd be like, that's a... I would be horrified but not surprised because... Mm-hmm such a significant portion of the American people seem to have just lost their fucking minds. Um, <laughs> like way, like outside of the normal amount of yeah. insanity, like real divorce from reality, but somehow, uh, and, and I noticed myself slipping into this. I, I, and I don't think I'm the only one my age who does that. We think of particularly the seventies as somehow a saner time, which I was not oh. raised to believe. No, uh, you do. Uh, no, I know no. it doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> yeah, because you think, okay, well, that's when they were making the good movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, they uh, it was the 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 time, the, you know, what what Mark Ames calls the American Clashnost. But no, they were also yeah. it was also pretty wild. Just in a I, different I think way. if you were from the right demographic, you could take a lot more risks, right? And, yes, and survive them. Yes, uh, that makes sense. I, I I witnessed this in the mid seventies. The the eighteen year olds I taught at Berkeley were changing, and mm. people of my generation would sneer at them for changing. But uh, if you started to see what was going on around them, they had to change. Yes, you couldn't just take a year off mm-hmm. and go bumming around. Um, yeah, it, it was it was like that line in Blade Runner: "If you're not cops, you're little people." And mm. you didn't want to be little people. And yep. so they had to tow a very tight line. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Sparks basically uh, helped destroy this family yep. um, that had already suffered a terrible tragedy uh, when they're. And it's, it's a classic example of what uh, sociologists call affinity fraud. Uh, mm. That is fellow Mormon. Um, she's going to do right by you. She's not going to embarrass your family. Mm-hmm. But uh, Beatrice was not that kind of Mormon. No, uh, she was. Uh, she was not. And uh, you know the thing. The thing with, and I don't think this is at all exclusive to Mormons. But the thing with these cultures of uh, this weird melange of, of fiction and myth and reality and the constant. Uh, positive thinking is that you can then convince yourself you you get you get not even have to convince yourself you just believe you're the good guy the whole time yeah uh yeah. sparks does not stop she keeps no. cranking out fake journals uh on hot topics of many many kind all, all many of the hot button issues uh that might uh uh affect teens either in reality or uh in the feverish imagination of parents in the late 20th century She's got a teen pregnancy journal, a, a journal of some teenager who gets AIDS somehow, uh, of uh, you know, being in gang. I, I know some teenagers would get HIV, but 
yeah, it was a very <laughs> unlikely story. This one, yeah, uh, it, was, it was a stupid story. Yeah. yeah, being in gangs, getting eating disorders, and they sold. They all sold. Oh yeah, right. But at the you end. know, this this is where I I have to say, and I know you already know this, but it's good. It's still good to remind mm. people of this. Um, whatever demographic you are, you are probably more like this than you think oh sure like um there's a, a case that is just unbelievable unbelievable um a woman who called herself misha de fonseca um oh. and it she published a memoir around the millennium uh called misha a memoir of the holocaust years mm. uh it describes how her jewish parents were taken off by the Nazis. And she then, as an orphan, fled across Europe uh, for some reason going from Belgium to Poland. You know, one would think that was the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, if she's an orphan, perhaps, you know, geography's not too good. Yeah, geographically challenged, definitely. <laughs> and uh, survived on uh, little bits of food that she catched and uh in the process shot a nazi soldier and then was oh. adopted by a pack of wolves that's where it gets me a pack of yeah wolves the the shooting in, a nazi in... officer seems unrealistic enough but yeah. then the a pack of wolves yeah a pack of wolves and uh, uh you could probably guess uh you know by this time um she wasn't jewish mm. uh she didn't have any of those experiences she was from a Belgian Catholic family. The thing is, her Belgian Catholic family was anti-Nazi, mm. and her several of her relatives were imprisoned, and some of them may have been tortured for uh, being anti-Nazi. But that didn't do it. Mm. Um, she had the Holocaust was very big in popular culture. Oh yes, in the early two thousands. Mm -hmm. So she had to be a Jewish survivor of. Uh, the Holocaust. So many European writers for generations had tried to hide a Jewish mm. identity. And now, as the whole cultural picture and the demographics change, it becomes, for the first time in history, in certain circumstances, an asset. And writers right. start using it. Yeah. I mean, in many respects, uh, if you if you want it's like it's like the um oh, what am I thinking of uh the dyes the dyed liquid that they could put in your body to uh trace your circulation and where it's uh blocking up where it's going quicker or slower not a medical guy as you could tell but uh if you want to see certain aspects of the culture at their least filtered and like the most um uh for lack of a better, you know, uh, you could tell, obviously, I've read a lot of your stuff by this time, a very Darwinian uh, yeah. way. Like, what is, what, where is the culture going? You kind of have to look at the worst opportunists, yeah, right? Because know. they're the ones who have the antenna yeah. uh, to see Besides, these they're fun. They are fun. They're really fun. At least when you're reading, you know, I, I really appreciate Rick Emerson for having done this work, both because it's an interesting story and so I don't have to like go and read 
yeah. <laughs> this is by, a lot and more. By f- the way, I I want to say um, I thank you for uh, telling me about his book. Mm. I wouldn't have come across it otherwise. And I, at first, his style, eh, mm-hmm. what I felt was probably what a lot of people feel reading, you know, whatever I write. Like, <laughs> who the hell is this guy? What? Right. Shut up. And uh, <laughs> eventually it kind of won me over. Mm. Like um, he has uh, fierce denunciations of Mm. people, uh, snap judgments, Mm -hmm. uh, glib summaries of things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't work out. Most of them do. Yeah. Yeah. He's willing to, he's willing to throw the dice and not constantly hedge. Right. Speaking as a, as someone who trained in history, uh, you know, we're, especially these days, we are champion hedgers. And there's something to be said for that in terms of trying to get shit right. But every now and again, you kind of got to actually say something um, yeah. about something relevant. And uh, his, I mean, Mark always quote Mark Ames, my partner on the uh, Radio Warner podcast, always quotes um, one of the Coburns, uh, I think, as saying to new recruits, uh, is your hate pure? Mm. And, and his hate is pure. When yeah. it comes to Beatrice Spark, and she right. absolutely deserves it. Yeah, yeah, she died completely unrepentant uh, in yep. uh, 2012. A wealthy woman. Uh, she she meets um, Alden's family. They mm. finally get up the nerve. They're very discreet people, perfect mm-hmm. victims. Oh yeah, as their son said about them. Uh, mm. They finally get up the nerve, like 20 years after their son's death, to say, you know, you you misused and hijacked our dead son's journal mm-hmm. and she just blows them away yep. with like half an hour of bullshit yeah yeah that's a, that's a, that's a that's a classic speaking as a prolix person myself mm-hmm. uh with people who are decent enough to actually think communication means something uh yeah. you can you can often i i like to think i don't do this too often <laughs> uh you can often just kind of if you just say enough words with enough yeah. authority, uh, they'll they'll just kind of assume that you're saying something uh, you, that you've somehow uh, justified yourself or refuted them or whatever else. So yeah, she was an operator that that woman. Yeah. Um. So one yeah, if she, uh, I mean, I, I admit I would have probably admired her if she just uh, if except for Alden, you know, uh, that's uh, yeah, that's too much blood. Yeah, it's too much blood. I would say I would also put a ding in her category for helping uh, to normalize the war on drugs and especially especially yeah. directed towards children. However, that train that train was going down the tracks. Like, yep, yep. She, I she mean, that, quotes Ehrlichman. I don't know if your your listeners know that famous mm-hmm. Ehrlichman quote. Like he says, the Nixon administration had two enemies: um, students and blacks. Mm-hmm. We couldn't criminalize being a student or being black, but we knew that each community had certain preferred substances. And mm-hmm. at the time it was uh, marijuana, which was more demonized than people now can oh, yeah. imagine, I think, and for the students and heroin for the blacks. And both of these uh, were aggressively demonized uh, by the, the Nixon administration, and as a result, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, spent their lives in hellish prisons. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, and that was going to happen kind of whether Sparks had anything to do with it. But yeah, Jay's journal, pretty sinister, uh, extraordinarily sinister in terms of what it did to the Barretts. Uh, One of the foundational texts of the 1980 Satanic Panic, which definitely destroyed many lives, uh, uh, which is and laid the seeds are i mean the one uh, historical causation is a tricky thing so i find mm. myself wondering whether this sort of uh series of vaguely satanic panics we're living through now with QAnon and what have you how much of that can said to have been caused by uh seeds planted during the satanic panic versus is it just basically a, a return like, is it just yeah. like people we're we're getting a repeat of it because we're in the same basic set of circumstances and yeah. people haven't changed that much. I don't know. No, uh, you'd have to go back and look at 19th and 18th century satanic panics. And I'm mm. sure there were a lot of them. Well, I'm not sure, but I would, I bet some money on it. Uh, uh, and I, you know, how they changed. And yeah. How they I mean, were the different. Cl- the classic is, of course, the witch trials in Salem. Yeah. And from what I could tell, uh, speaking as someone who has tried to study a little bit the history of New England in a critical way, being a New Englander, uh, the elites more or less decided uh, at a time when they were very powerful and a pretty coherent class, right? So 1692, mm. that was around the time like the merchant elite and the preachers were kind of coming to their consolidation, the Massachusetts colony. And I think they kind of all decided we we can't do this again. We can't <laughs> let these people, uh, A, we can't let these people get out of hand and B, we certainly can't encourage them like Cotton Mather did. Or yeah. is that the right one? I don't remember. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, uh, well, there were, there were Ma- uh, Mathers all around. Oh um, yeah. Mathers yeah. on top of Mathers. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the Mathers helped encourage them. And I think that, that was around the time they were saying we got to calm some of this down. Because uh, <laughs> they'd stop doing it in Europe for right. a while. It's like, yeah. oh, throwbacks. Yeah, I mean, uh, w- one way in which New England is relatively unique uh, historically in the U.S. is like the, I mean, you get a lot of oligarchies in this country, mm-hmm. but um, the Massachusetts elite was particularly united uh, mm-hmm. and they um didn't have a ton of competitors until the the irish catholics broke kind of the stranglehold but anyway that's also a huge digression um in terms of uh, the last thing before you know you've been really great you've been on here this whole time um the last thing i want to talk to you about is uh your great article that you wrote back when that i I found a copy of uh, about literary frauds specifically uh thomas chatterton the uh the the sort of who made up a fictional uh background for the merchants of bristol in the uh 18th century the somewhat more famous ocean uh Mm -hmm. poems of james mcpherson these kind of again made up scottish poems and joseph smith right speaking of mormonism he wrote the book of mormon i don't necessarily want to offend the the funny thing is you know even even fawn brody uh, who wrote the best book on Joseph Smith, uh, No Man Knows My History, didn't come out and say he had no divine inspiration. He just, she just also said, here's, here's why yeah. it's pretty unlikely. But I'm willing to come out and say he wrote it. 
whether yeah. or not he was also inspired by some divine uh, divine figure who, who's to say um mm-hmm. but all three of them as literary uh discoverers of found texts yeah, yeah. uh well but, yeah i mean that, this this comes out of uh research that i did long ago that um one one of the things that will uh occur again and again uh and it occurs in Beatrice Sparks' life too is people start wondering where did she find all these mm-hmm. diaries? That happens to be an ancient preoccupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever the idea of fiction becomes important again, useful, mm-hmm. and and this, by the way, is a, a chronic process, a cyclical, if you like, process. Mm-hmm. Fiction is not a stable relation. People don't really yes. like reading things that they don't think are true. They they want it to be true. Mm-hmm. They get into the habit of reading things that they sort of half know are fiction. Mm-hmm. And what gets them in that line is texts that first generation presents as literally true. I found this in, in my uncle's attic after he died, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, 300, say, French 17th century novelists say the same thing i also found something mm. in my uncle's attic and eventually people stop believing in mm-hmm. uh that many uncles writing that many <laughs> uh correspondences that have never been right. seen before but at the same time they're into the habit of reading these things so they mm. finally grudgingly accept them but people don't really like fiction it it irks them yeah uh, we 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 it, it's it's something that people don't talk enough about but it's true yeah uh you know it, we we i've heard so many people say oh the the most basic thing about being human is that we make up stories uh, <laughs> and it's true but that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean we like it when other people make no, up stories we, we really don't we put yeah in the prison. <laughs> right and yeah and so uh in many, many contexts, including right now, including uh, mm. the um, suburban white L.A. woman who said she was a crip and oh, she God. bought a, a <laughs> graveyard plot with the first crip money she ever earned. And, so and good. Published <laughs> and believed. Um, <laughs> the first thing we do is present uh whatever we want to tell as a true story and Mm -hmm. in this culture it's usually therefore an autobiographical story Mm -hmm. since we don't believe in the uncles and the papers in the attic as much as they did um and if you get that believed there's much more much more intense belief and loyalty among your readers Mm. english professors believe me i know talk about the willing suspension of disbelief that is bullshit (laughs) okay that is just not true Mm. of how people read Mm. most people especially civilians who haven't been through the college english uh process of uh believing a lot of nonsense Mm -hmm. um they they believe something if they think it's true they don't believe it and they don't like it if they think it's untrue mm-hmm. um they may believe a science fiction story because it's uh wildly improbable at all but um that's a different process i don't want to get into it now yeah mostly they believe what they consider to be true stories um so all these three guys uh forgers if you like um 
Joseph Smith, by far the most successful. Uh -huh. um, Thomas Chatterton uh, and James McPherson have very interesting stories in their own right that I don't have time to uh -huh. tell and it would probably bore people anyway. Uh -huh. But uh, they all present these their stories as found texts. Like, uh -huh. oh, I found this somehow. Joseph Smith's story is the most improbable of the three, and it's also the most successful. Um, every stage of his finding of the Book of Mormon is sort of a take it or leave it. Mm. You're not going to believe this <laughs> yeah. kind of story. And right. they took it. They took yeah. it because there was something in it for them. Mm. And I don't want to have people going away from this thinking oh, that's just for those hicks, because mm -hmm. if we cared to do it, we could dwell on stories that are much closer to the likely audience for this. Oh, for sure. But um, what they wanted was a backdated title to America. Like, yeah. the red men were not the first to be here. Mm -hmm. We were the first, the white, well, Israelites, European. They wanted two backgrounds to be legitimized, mm -hmm. uh, Christian, uh, Israelite, and uh, European, white. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see that in a much nobler way in, in uh, some of Blake's poetry. But mm. in this case, it was just, yeah, we were here first. Uh, there are all kinds of ruins. We just haven't seen them yet. Mm -hmm. And there's this book detailing what happened to us. And wouldn't you know, we uh, fell away from God. Mm. And our kingdom in the new world was taken from us. And now we're going to get it back. It made people feel really good, and mm -hmm. it, it it had a much more to offer them than the other variants of Christianity in the burnt over district mm -hmm. where, uh, where McPherson was from. They called it burnt over because there were there had been so many revivals, and revivals were such a manic depressive experience mm. <laughs> that, that everybody in that district was supposedly <laughs> yeah. Um, you gotta figure and, that must have been pretty intense. It was. Well, I, I've seen it with people who are Protestant uh, evangelical friends of mine. I mean, mm. to be honest, I, it's very much very different from the uh, grim Irish Catholicism of, of my uh, upbringing. Uh, Protestantism of that kind encourages a kind of bipolar existence mm. like God loves me. God hates me. Right. So, you, know, you, you go back and forth. Um, but Mormonism kind of evened that out a little. Mm -hmm. Like you have a genealogy, you have mm -hmm. a background here. You hang together because you're a threatened community, uh, and it gave a lot of pleasure to a lot of marginalized people, and they banded together very effectively. So the most, what I'm saying is, the most implausible of those three literary forgeries, and they were literary. Many mm. people said if Joseph Smith had been born in a wealthier family, he would have written novels. Oh, for sure. But he, he didn't have that option. The family was dirt poor. Mm. Uh, so he wrote what his audience valued, and that was scripture. And that yeah. was all they valued. Yeah. So where where would you rank Sparks in terms of uh, found found document forgers? She ain't fit to shine Smith's shoes. Uh. 
Well, um, I, I like to think she would agree with that, given that she was a Mormon, and you know, well, I don't I, think she would. No, well, <laughs> I think she would have had to have pretended, but she would have been have pretended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would have been seething in, yeah. inside. Yeah, but the most interesting thing about her, in terms of another of the forgers, McPherson, is that Scotland was getting rich throughout mm. the 18th century, and uh, McPherson, who'd been a survivor of 1745, which is a, a horror story oh, in yeah. Scottish history, um, he uh, realized, "Whoa, there's all these lowland millionaires, and they really want to be Scottish in some uh, way that they can be proud of." Mm. So maybe I'll discover a lot of uh, Gaelic poetry from the Highlands which is, you know, the part where nobody has any money and therefore it's authentic. Mm, you yeah. still get that today, of course. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, he did. He came up with poems. But then they, many, many critics said, and this is very similar to Spark, oh, yeah, well, those are magnificent poems. The Ossianic poems are fantastic. But, you know, uh, McPherson didn't have anything to do with it. He just translated them mm. from the Gaelic and he seethed. Yeah, just like Beatrice Sparks. Right. Yeah, scene. that's a that's like the first scene in in I think the introduction. Right. It's her yeah. at the award dinner. Yeah. Uh, for for the best selling writers or or the from whichever publishing house, and she can't get up and get her award because Go Ask Alice is by Anonymous. Yep. Huh. And all the good parts are supposed to be by the dead girl. And, yeah. Uh, and then she tries to do things on her own, but nobody appreciates them. Mm -hmm. And this happened to McPherson too. He then published uh, a translation, well, it was a translation in this case, of um, the Iliad. Mm. And uh, he was uh, going around threatening Samuel Johnson, who, by the way, began uh, carrying a club <laughs> in <laughs> response and wrote back to him, you're abilities are not so formidable since your Iliad and that must have really hurt him mm. like oh yeah that's that's harsh it's a hard it's a harsh reality literature and I yep. think if there's uh anything we're trying to get across here it's that uh a lot of our along with just you know relating this interesting story um of, of what happened with Sparks and praising Emerson for his work and illuminating it it's that a lot of our images of how literature works filtered as they are through uh english the the, yeah. the profession of english which i mean i came from uh, i i know a lot of very well-meaning english teachers who i think do their best uh and that a lot of it is uh misleading in terms yeah. of what people actually look for what the right what writing is like what publishing is like what uh, what, how people relate to truth and to fiction and myth. Uh, you got, you got to rethink some of that folks. And, and I mean, to, to rehash an old cliche, if you come across the, the perfect narrative that confirms mm. everything you believe about the world, well, yeah, I've, I've definitely run into that. Um, my mm. favorite is, and I've, I've since learned not to do it, uh, though I still feel the instinct whenever a mass shooting happens, uh, mm -hmm. I look for the reasons why it points to fascists or Nazis uh, or white supremacists, yeah. because I mean, and at this point, one of the reasons it's easy to not do it anymore is because there's been so goddamn many of them that are, 
um, it's kind of pointless now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember 9-11. Uh, I was, uh, I guess I might as well just give my exact when, how old I am. I was 16. And mm-hmm. I, that was at the end of my first period of interest in like studying the far right. And I knew enough about it to know that in the end of the Turner diaries, uh, a, a, the, the hero crashes a plane into the Pentagon, though Mm -hmm. it's a much bigger plane with a nuclear bomb or something on it, because you know, why, why the hell not? And my first Mm -hmm. thought was, okay, this is white supremacists, Mm -hmm. which along with whatever else, like just appealed to my interests, appealed to what I had of politics at 16. Obviously it wasn't them. Um, but, uh, that's an impulse. I know other, I, I know other people, I think on all sides of the political spectrum who wind up doing that with these unfortunately, extremely reliably happening mass shootings. And there yeah. is a politics to them, but you can't just at this point, the political climate in this country is so overheated that you can't always yeah, uh, depend on any one party to be the crazy one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I was going to be scammed, it would probably be somebody presenting herself as a YPJ veteran. I mean, mm. it would it would be easy. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, we are we we do believe in uh, exposing uh, the the relevant worst of ourselves here on this podcast. Yeah. So you know, we 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 make our errors, we own up to them. Uh, John, this has been fantastic. Uh, oh, you know, you've you. been a huge uh, influence. Uh, on my reading and writing i really appreciate you coming on is there any project fun. yeah thank you is there are there any like projects uh or uh things you well like yeah to I, out i'm later? putting out a, a book of newsletters for radio warner newsletters um uh, pretty soon I, I i have to splice things together and yeah uh it's work and i'm old and lazy mm. but I, it'll be out soon Awesome. Yeah. So uh, go check that out. I keep meaning uh, another self-crit is I keep meaning to say this stuff either at the end or the beginning of podcasts. And I forget, but this time I won't. Uh, if you like this podcast, please uh, subscribe to it. Uh, rate it on things, I guess. I would guess that's helpful. You can leave reviews. You can leave negative reviews as far as I'm concerned. Just, you know, and any publicity, as they say, uh, you could consider also subscribing uh, at my uh, Substack. Uh, if you if you pay the five dollars, I finally I think have landed on a, a decent thing to pay for, which is my Discord community. I know you're thinking, oh, why do I want to listen more to me? But really, there's a lot of people on it at this point. People have been telling me it's a good Discord group, so give that a consideration uh, and check out John's book. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Thanks, Peter. Bye. Bye.